This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com forward slash B-E. Welcome to an exciting episode today of the Authority Podcast. We're doing something a little different today. We're speaking with all four co-authors of the book, Five Practices for Equity-Focused School Leadership. This book, which is published by ASCD, is a recent winner of the Best Book for Educators category in the Excellence in Equity Awards from the American Consortium for Equity and Education. And we're so pleased to have all the authors here in the first half of the episode right now. I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Sharon Rad and Dr. Mark Anthony Gooden. And in the second half, we're going to be chatting with their co-authors, Dr. Gretchen givens Generet and Dr. George Theo Harris. So you can learn a lot more about all of our guests down in the show notes. We'll have their full bios. We'll, of course, have the links to the book, as we usually do, and other resources. But we have a lot to cover, so I want to jump right into our interview. So welcome, Sharon and Mark, to the show. Thank, Thank you, Ross. Ross. Good to be here. Yeah, I think... Yeah, absolutely. It's so wonderful to have you here. And this book is ideal for our listeners. And so I think something that's really interesting to talk about it, this is the first in this series. It's not uncommon. I actually worked at ASCD in the past. So it's certainly not uncommon to have books with a variety of co-authors working together, but we haven't had one like that featured on the show yet. So I think it would be great to talk about what brought you all together. I know you all had at least casual relationships beforehand, but as far as I'm aware, this is your first time collaborating to this extent. So how did you all come together and form the team that worked on this book? Let me to take that one, Mark. Sure. I usually, I usually answer that one. I had known George for quite a long time and uh, and known him pretty well. He was actually a great mentor to me when I was working on my doctorate and knew Mark. I We all are at research conferences together. And so I knew Mark and I was really interested in putting together a group of folks who could really inform in a high level, nuanced and complex way, how school leaders can actually advance an equity focused agenda and particularly one that focuses on race and is inclusive of all identities. I'd been in K-12 for 23 years and had really seen the difficulties that school leaders encounter in trying to do this work and the shortcomings that we have as school leaders and 
also the shortcomings of sort of our preparation and becoming school leaders, and particularly when we want to focus on equity. And so I knew that it was a unique practice and it needed a unique response and that it was desperately needed across the country. And so George has this seminal work out and I knew him and I wanted to put together a team that could do a professional learning series. And so I reached out to George and asked him if he wanted to be part of it. I reached out to Mark, who I knew a little bit, and asked him if he would want to be part of it. And then I spoke with Mark about who else we might invite. And I really wanted to make sure that we had a team that had really the composition that we had a white male, a white female, a black male, and a black female. And that was really intentional so that we could bring multiple perspectives to the table. And so Mark introduced me to Gretchen. And I was just really excited to get to meet her. And so we started meeting and talking about what we might do. We did do a summer institute and then really liked working together, continued. And George and Gretchen at the same time came up with the idea to write a book. And one of them had the idea to do it with ASCD so that it'd really get into the hands of practitioners. And that was several years ago, actually. <laughs> we right. finally were all published right. in February 2021, almost two years ago now. All right, all right, all right. And I'll just add to that, Sharon. I think an important part of the story, Ross, is that as we were coming together to work on writing a book, we spent quite a bit of time just getting to know each other, you know, spending time. Like, the book was there. It was in the background. But the development of the relationships was so important that we tended to enjoy each other. We enjoyed each other, I think, intellectually around the work, but just enjoyed each other as people. And so that kind of conversation and those kinds of early connections have continued on throughout the process. So much so that not that we were really rushing to get the book out. It was just a time to come together, talk about the work, and then emphasize over what we need to do to move this book toward production but it didn't feel like we were in a rush situation around that project itself versus getting to know each other a little bit better. A lot of our listeners are administrators, folks who are pretty far into their careers at the midpoint, very experienced people who may eventually pursue something like writing a book, maybe they have already, or other kinds of projects where collaboration is key to them. And a couple of things you mentioned are worth going into a little further. You talked, Darren, you mentioned the intentionality, right, around how this team was assembled and saying, okay, we really have, there's an important way that we need to assemble the team and collaborate. And Mark, you talked about really just getting to know each other, right? That it's not all just about, here's the agenda, let's do these things. And I think all of that is indicative of the fact that writing a book like this, really writing a lot of types of books is just as much sharing what you already know, right? I already have to know everything that needs to be in the book before I even start. And in this case, it's saying, okay, each of us has certain expertise, certain personal experiences and things that we already know that we're bringing to the team, but also we're specifically working with these other folks who we know are bringing other things that we might not know yet or perspectives that we haven't personally experienced, and we're learning from each other as we go. So I wanted to ask each of you, and I'm also going to ask your co-authors the same, what's something that you learned while writing the book? You learned from your co-authors, you learned from going through the material and more deeply maybe exploring certain things that you had certain knowledge of, but you turned over some new information. We'll start with Mark on that. Sure. Yeah, thank you for the question. One of the things I learned is and it's almost like a relearning each time, this idea of sitting with folks 
who have really different experiences as friends and as colleagues and understanding the best way to think through how to phrase these questions. Of course, we, there's a content of the book, but there was the idea that these were people who I was in relationship with. And just as you hear people sort of struggle with this newness of this content and how we don't talk about things like race, for instance, this was a space where I could sit with colleagues and not as the facilitator, but talk about some of these challenges and then get their input. But at the same time, listen to what they were saying and try to be honest about how I was experiencing what they were saying. And that was a growth point for me because it was all, it was this thing about, and I should, and I say growth point in the sense of it's almost always a new growth point in different relationships with people, right? It's the same thing over about wanting to be authentic and making sure that we do that in a way that brings out the best in yourself, but also the best in the people in which you're talking to through learning. So we did that multiple times. We talked about some of those difficult topics. I remember having that initial conversation about foregrounding race in our work and then thinking about the other identities. What does that mean? Because I had been in a, several conversations with colleagues where that didn't always go according to plan. <laughs> and that, honestly, that right. worried me a little bit because I would turn that over in my head and say, oh man, I want to make sure we're creating and maintaining a relationship, but I want to be honest about what this experience has meant for me and what I think I've learned over the years in working with a range of people in the process. So it was just good just to be in that space to learn and relearn over and over again and sit and just be an honest learner, admit what I did not know, or just be honest about where there was some true apprehension in going into these conversations. Sharon, what did you learn while working on the book? Yeah, I would echo what Mark said, of course, there's stuff in the content of the book that that we all learned. But I would say the biggest learning for me was also related to conversations about race and racism, really specifically in this, mm -hmm. what Mark just talked about, having those conversations about foregrounding race. Mark, I was a little bit on the fence about that, and but really open to learning more and wanting to get this right for school leaders and really, really trusting Mark and Gretchen in particular uh, about you know, why we should do this. And so having those conversations with one another, asking about and really learning about how race is unique and racism is unique in the United States, right? There are many, many forms of oppression. There are, none of them are good. We wanna undo all of them, but why we should put race first is something that I, that, that I'm really, really convinced about. And Mark and Gretchen really took the time to answer questions that I had around that. And I was really grateful about that. And I think the other thing I wanna say about this is that we were really intentional about assembling this team that had these four identities that we talked about. We were also intentional about the fact that we have similar approaches and how we think this work should be done, that it should be handled with care with people, that we know that this is hard learning, that we can't back away from reality because of that, but we need to really engage learners. And we all share that philosophy. So that we experienced that with one another as well. And that ended up just being one of the greatest gifts for me personally and professionally was the care with that we relate with one another in our learning and even when it's hard topics. It's really fitting that each of your answers indicated a lot of listening and reflection because I have some comments here from the judges who reviewed the book as part of the Excellence in Equity Awards that you, that you recently won. And 
each of them when asked about what stood out to them really highlighted the intentionally built in moments of reflection within the book that the material is presented clearly and digestibly. There's spots for the reader to pause and reflect. There's activities in there for the self-discovery, the understanding. And that's so critical in my view for, particularly for equity-focused content, because you can go through the whole list of inequities that need to be disrupted and the challenges that exist and the history of that. And it can be done in a way that it's a flood of information and it can almost overwhelm the senses, right? And it can be a case of one, it might really invigorate somebody, but give them a lot of passion without necessarily connecting it to purpose because they haven't had time to think about, okay, what do I do with this information? <laughs> or, you know, on the flip side, it could also be discouraging because it could be like, I mean, there's, we're up against so much and I haven't had time to breathe and think about what do I do? What can I bring to this? And now I just, I feel overwhelmed. So I wanted to ask you both about the structure and the thought process of building in those reflection activities and the way in which they're woven into the content to create, I think, that cadence for learning. So what was your thought process behind that as you were structuring how you wanted to present the book? I think we can, we'll start with Sharon on this one. Sure. Again, we all have a similar approach and we all collectively agree that this isn't just a matter of presenting somebody with information. We actually know that this type of learning is going to make people uncomfortable because it goes against what they've learned. And particularly, we write about this in the book, but particularly knowing that something over 80% of teachers are white and most likely have been taught that race is insignificant in the United States or that racism no longer exists or have these beliefs or that it has nothing to do with them, that they're not doing anything to perpetuate racism. And so we know that that's not just information that people take in, but it actually starts to really interact with their emotional reactions, their physiological reactions. And we need to give people time to digest information and wrestle with the ways that the accurate information conflicts with what they already know or believe to be true and to give them space and support to develop more complex and more accurate ways of understanding how all of this works. And so the process to do that is share information and pause and provide structure for how people can wrestle with that information and integrate it into their understandings. So we did that throughout the book. I'll toss it to you, Mark. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And building on that, Sharon said earlier that we wanted to do this with a sense of care. Imagine what it's like in the book we talk about people having personal paradigms or these individual paradigms. And we try to approach that with care from the perspective of a learner and understanding that you are taking people down a journey of unlearning. So imagine that you have been told, for instance, that the world is flat and everything that you knew about the world emphasized over and over again that it was flat. Your parents had told you it was flat. Your friends had told you you had gone to your religious institute and they told you it was flat. And then you have these people coming and say, you know what? The world might be round. And I say that in the sense that there's a question mark at the end of that, because we're going to ask you to reflect on what if it were true that the world were around? I mean, are there some other things that would also be needed to be explored more in your self-paradigm, your individual paradigm? And then what if the world had this collective paradigm 
that in some ways and sometimes were consistent with you not learning more, but in other ways it was pulling you, tugging you along and asking you to really consider some well-placed questions so that you can grow and become a better educator. So ultimately, one of the things in the book is certainly about building those relationships, being in community with people as you learn, but it's also really about as you learn together with folks, you're going to really move toward becoming a better leader, a better educator, looking for a better way to do this work. And it's, this is not kind of an add-on. This is not something that you're going to attach to what you're doing and then detach it down the road. No, we want you to take this into a space of being really internal with it. How do I make this a part of who I am and introspectively interrogate what I do? And so we wanted to be clear that we were carefully taking people through that, but also understanding that it's unnerving to disrupt somebody's thinking and disrupt their practices, especially when they've been taught, as Sharon has just said, that race is not that really that big of a deal. We've heard over and over again from, from white colleagues, for instance, a lot of my students have said over the years, I knew I was white, but I didn't really see race as playing a big role in my life. Therefore, I didn't see how I right. really stepped on the toes of somebody who had racial experiences every other day, right? And so I just thought it was just a thing that was said, and it may be even in the past. So once again, we had to take people, give people that space to really disrupt that thinking, ask questions about it, and then think about how is this going to improve what I am doing so that I can ultimately look at really disrupting the system, deconstructing it in many ways, but then rebuilding back something that's going to be equitable and more focused on supporting those folks, especially those people who've been marginalized because of their identities. It, it makes me think, I'm sure one of the challenges of writing the book and preparing the book is what is, how are readers introduced to it? Because you know that you have readers who are coming from all different experiences, perspectives. They're at a certain point on the continuum of their familiarity with the research into inequities, the causes, all of this, stuff, right? And so you may have readers coming to the book who are well-intentioned, they want to do well by their students, but they're either a little bit skeptical of some of the content, or at the very least, maybe they don't have a strong opinion on the causes and, and history behind inequities as a result of race or gender identity or any variety of other factors. And you know that it's really important to get them early right? <laughs> because it's, if I'm on the fence and the first couple of things I read or I'm not really, oh, this doesn't really necessarily seem to be for me, I might opt out before I really get into the stuff that's going to start to hook me. Is there almost a reflection activity that you would recommend to a reader before they open the book to say, just think about these things and you'll prepare yourself to be in the mindset for what you're going to read when you go through the book, even if you haven't read that much about this stuff before, here's where it's coming from and just think about how that influences your practice or what you've observed. And Mark, I'll pose that one to you. And then I have a, a little bit of a different question yeah, for sure. Sharon. Um, so yeah, we thought a little bit, maybe even a lot about that question, Ross, and, and kind of the organization of the book. So one of the things we start with is really this, what I believe we, have, we get to this rich conversation about the levels of inequity. And we're using stories of really America, right? To tell people, okay, if you're in this country, this mm -hmm. is our context. Are you familiar with the GI Bill? And so we're talking about a different way to look at GI Bill. We're talking about a different way to look at how we, how we fund schools and think, what if those ways that we've done that 
even have some inequities built in. So we're really taking people, I think, mm-hmm. through a conversation that's intellectual, that's going to be interesting. Sometimes we tend to think, oh, many people have heard by now, like the ripple effect of the GI Bill and some folks' parents benefiting from that and folks returning from the war and getting access to those funds and buying a house and using the funds from that and the equity built in their homes to build wealth. But maybe people are not familiar with that. Or maybe people have been have experienced that right. and have been in that situation and never thought about it in that way. I just real quick aside, I remember my first year teaching, I had a close colleague who when we both were first year teachers talking about buying our homes and she was explaining to me why her parents were going to give her 20% so she wouldn't have to pay personal mortgage insurance. And it was just a casual conversation. And, but she was sharing with me the wealth that her parents had built and the expectation that when you buy a house, you take 20% to the table. And she turned to me and I think it was an innocuous question, but she was like, and what about you? What percentage will your parents be given? 20, 25%. And I said, we're like zero. (laughs) Because my parents have not had that opportunity (laughs) to build wealth like your parents had. And so it was like an awkward moment in the conversation. But again, it was from her perspective of expecting and thinking, we're just alike. But me just gently pulling you away from them, there may be differences. So not to belabor the point, but in the book, we really try to get people into thinking about what those stories are in America that we may have seen and what is a different perspective. And then we move into what are some of those narratives in schools that we have told, sometimes we have heard and haven't challenged, but sometimes many of us have been guilty, and I'll raise my hand first, that we've said some of these things that are insensitive to our kids, the kids that we're serving, but they really are about what we have experienced and what our lives have been like and not those that we're trying to serve. So we really try to start there in the book. Right. And if we were going to talk about things outside of that, um, I'll just say one good thing that I've used over the years is a PBS special that's been played over and over, and it's called Race, The Power of an Illusion is one of those. And we referenced it in the book, of course, but that's one of those videos I think people can look at because it starts out with kids who are learning more about differences that they thought they had based on race, and they challenge this concept about race being this biological concept, and then they realize, oh my God, it is a social construct, and it's such a great way for teachers to see that in a learning space with high schoolers interrogating that kind of space. Yeah. And Sharon, I think it's relevant to note that the reflection is both professional and personal and that depending on the school in which a leader works, those two things may more or less frequently interact with one another, right? You could be, for example, if you're a leader in a highly diverse school or a school with a high minority population, the results of your efforts around equity might be more visible within the school walls. But if you're a leader at a school that's in a community where your student body is all white and you don't necessarily have to engage too much with this to have students who appear to be succeeding, the results of your efforts around equity are not necessarily visible until those kids are out in the world. And they either have or have not been educated and informed about equity and inequity and how they need to really be highly contributing citizens. And so a leader in a certain case may appear to be equally effective (laughs) without, but not really effective as far as the objectives that we really want to have, which is students that grow up into adults that are prepared to know a lot more about this and to be informed and to make sure that the next generation, the following generation is better and better equipped for equitable opportunity. So I guess I just wanted to briefly touch on what the importance is of 
weaving in those personal reflections that are outside of the, how they interact with your profession, but the fact that it's a values-oriented profession, right? It's mission-oriented work. So understanding your personal values is critical to understanding your professional values. Yeah. And I would say that we show up as human beings every day at work. And at one point, there was a lot of talk about the formal curriculum and the informal curriculum. I don't know if people are talking about that as much as in K-12, but the informal curriculum is everywhere and it's all over. And if we don't look at ourselves and the way that we see the world, we are going to perpetuate what we grew up with, honestly. And my experience is that you'd be surprised at how even in very racially diverse settings, how whiteness perpetuates itself and how people, particularly white people, but many people perpetuate whiteness in a really diverse setting. Those questions that we have people reflecting on, particularly in practice too, where they're thinking about their identity and their experiences with it and how their personal identity connects with systems of inequity in our country. Those are really important because none of us should assume that we are free of views that perpetuate inequity. We always need to be on guard. And we may be, depending on our own identity and our experiences, we may be really informed about certain aspects of identity, but really uninformed about other aspects of identity and how inequity is related to that. And so I think that personal work that we ask people to do is critical because so much, I think it was Charlotte Danielson who said that teachers make something like 40,000 non-trivial decisions a day, like some astronomical amount of decisions. And all of those decisions are informed by their personal paradigms and some of their professional paradigms. It's astounding sometimes when I talk with educators, how their personal views are really shaping their practice. And that's important, right? Educators bring a lot of really great things into the classroom that are just very much connected to their hearts and their values. And we need to make sure that we are all checking ourselves about how we're seeing things and how we can do so more inclusively and more equitably. And none of us ever finish that work. We have to keep doing it. So let's, we're going to start to move into a little bit of the meat of the book here. And as I referenced at the top of the show, and you'll obviously see this on the show title. It's called Five Practices for Equity-Focused School Leadership. So these five practices build toward the vision of what an equity-focused school is. So beginning with that end in mind, I wanted to start here. What does an equity-focused school look like? If I'm closing my eyes and envisioning, okay, if I'm inside one of these schools that sort of is eventually living by this and we're trying to get there, what is the vision that working toward? Yeah, great question. I would think that when you would go into the space, you would have folks who are certainly curious about learning about ways to make the school more supportive of folks who wouldn't get full access to the curriculum, right? It doesn't mean that they have arrived, but they are constantly challenging themselves to be better around, let's just say, our students who are students with disabilities. We're thinking about how our students want to be and need to be in a connected space with each other. We're not thinking about those mm-hmm. old models of pull out and saying we're going to we're going to do this just because the structure has demanded it demanded it for so long no really waking up each day to say we know that this is not right we know that our theory is catching up with our practice but we're trying things that really pay attention to the dignity of our students emphasize that they are important and that we want them to feel like they belong in this space and so you walk into a school like that and immediately you want to be 
feeling as if you well, you're welcome there and you belong there, regardless of what your identity is, regardless of who you are, how you show up. We want you to be here. And we don't want it to be this idea that we have this collector paradigm that says there's a particular kind of model student. Maybe we don't have a picture of that model student on the wall, but we have these ways of emphasizing. And we often do that, by the way, Ross. We have in our mind what that particular student looks like at every single level. And we don't say it out loud, but then when people don't show up that way, we tend to treat them differently. Uh, I've heard a couple of narratives where parents send their kids to school and their pre-K kids, and then they get go from pre-K to get to first grade. And for a lot of parents, it's like, this is the time where to be learn how to read. But for a lot of teachers, depending on their personal background and what spaces they've been in, they look at those kids as guys like, why can't you read? <laughs> so that immediately starts right. to make that kid feel as if you don't belong. Do they say it out loud? Not necessarily, but they embrace and say how great it is to see those other kids over there who can read. So we have to realize that in, in a school where we are focused on equity, that we're taking in everybody and we're figuring out every day, we're asking questions about how do we make this environment more embracing of everybody? How do we come up with teaching methods or experiment with methods where everybody who's in the classroom is participating? We're not having kids in the back excluded because they're quiet or because, no, we're bringing everybody in. And, and so I would say the language sounds very different when people are talking and when they're telling stories. It's stories of triumph. It's, sure, they're going to be stories of challenge, but the stories of, that we're sharing about how I supported this particular student and how you can support that student. So I can go on and on, but I would just say you're going to be in a space where folks are keenly aware of who they are based on a range of identities. And they're not saying that I have arrived, but as Sharon said earlier, they're continuing to ask those questions, continuing to realize that it is imperative that I continue to grow because I become a better leader. I become a better educator and I become better for my students. And it feels good to our students and it feels good for us as a community to continue learning from each other and supporting each other because we don't talk so much about it in the book, I think, except when we get to part three, when we start talking about building these equity leadership teams, there will be a different way of running meetings, for instance, so that things are more collective and collaborative and people who have particular talents who are leading the school in different ways, teacher leadership, some people say even positional leadership or leadership by passion, even those folks are seeing growth and opportunities to to bring their expertise to the table to support the kids and to support colleagues. And I think people who are working in all different kind of roles in a district might be thinking about, okay, once I walk into that school, what can I expect the principal to be doing? <laughs> what does that person look like? What are they doing? What, how are they setting this vision? And I think that starts with practice one, which is prioritizing equity leadership and adopting that transformative approach. Sharon, I'd love to give you an opportunity to touch on that practice, how that kind of starts things off for working toward an equity-focused school? Yeah, so practice one, again, prioritizing equity leadership. We really felt when we were thinking about how to structure the book, we really needed to make sure that with everybody, every reader who's opening the page, that we are saying, opening the book, that, that we say, every day we have to choose this. And we have to choose it again today, right? We have to choose again today that we are going to prioritize equity leadership and as it, the subtitle, that it is a transformative approach. So this isn't about tinkering on around the edges or tiny little tweaks, even though some of those are going to be useful and helpful, but really it's about recognizing that there is a system that is set up to create the outcomes that we have. And 
we aren't going to change those outcomes unless we change the system. And so mm-hmm. we really have to transform the system. And we know that is where we have to start is recognizing this isn't just about going to a two-day professional learning session. It's not just about saying we're going to prioritize. This is going to be our strategic focus this year, and then we'll be done with it. This is a choice we have to make every day to keep focusing on equity. And it starts today again. And we can, we're building on what we've done and we're continuing and we're starting again. Excellent. So in the second half of this episode, we're going to talk about these the other four practices. And so we'll get a view of how this process evolves in the different work in schools. But as we wrap up here with Mark and Sharon, I want to ask each of them a question that we'll also ask George and Gretchen and have just one idea come out from each author around the most significant challenges that school leaders have to address in order to lead with a focus on equity. So if each of you could only highlight one, what's one that you'd like to bring up to get leaders to start thinking about? And Mark, we'll start with you. The most significant challenge? Just one of the most significant challenges, at least, or one that is really important to you that school leaders have to address if they want to even get started. Yeah, okay, great. Yeah, great question. I think people, leaders will have to address this idea that it's okay to make mistakes in this work, right? And you should show yourself as being vulnerable in many ways and take as many opportunities to do that so that the folks who are learning around you know that it's okay that for us to make mistakes as we learn to be more equitable. And in fact, you're reaching for that transformative vision. You really should say something to folks like, there are going to be mistakes along the way. And as we were saying earlier, Sharon refers to some powerful structural things that we could not do this without making mistakes. So just be okay with that. And that in and the only the second part of that is that we're going to be there to provide grace for you, but we have to recognize we have to hold each other accountable because if we don't do that, then we're just making each other feel good and kids are continuing to suffer. Sharon, what's the uh, the challenge that you want leaders to keep thinking about addressing? I think uh, right alongside with Mark, we'll end up with four, which will be great, is that is recognizing that this is a systemic issue. The challenges that we see are that school leaders and school professionals and people who are there because they love kids still have this view that when kids aren't doing well in school, that it's something that the kid or the family has done wrong or some way that they're inadequate. And that sort of deficit orientation is prevalent and has been baked into many educators' preparation but it really ignores the system. And so we really need to be looking at the system. And in doing so, we have to recognize that the system itself is in a really difficult spot. We're in a really difficult place as a country and that is playing out in schools. And so that's a very highly political, very challenging place for school leaders to be in who want to do this work and really make a change. And so I think there are really valuable tips in the book. First, even thinking about what does it mean that it's a system as opposed to individual failings of kids or their families or teachers, and then really thinking about how we knit that system through the highly political nature of what's going on right now, the economic challenges that we're facing, and really shifting how people engage in this profound social change that we need to make in order to create more equity-focused schools. 
and more equitable schools and learning experiences for kids. So I think staying focused on the system and then analyzing where you can make the initial impact and keep going is really what what leaders have to do. And most haven't been trained to think that way about their organizations. Thank you so much, Dr. Sharon Rad and Dr. Mark Gooden for joining the Authority Podcast. Listeners, stay tuned after this quick break as we're going to be joined by their co-authors and we're going to go even All deeper right. into Thank this book. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Ross. We're back, and I'm now joined by Dr. Gretchen Gibbons-Generat and Dr. George Theo Harris as we continue our discussion about five practices for equity-focused school leadership. So welcome, Gretchen and George, to the show. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. It's great to be here. So one of the questions that I had asked your co-authors, and I wanted to get your perspectives on as well, we talked about how writing a book like this with a team that was put together so intentionally to have diverse perspectives and backgrounds and expertise is that writing a book like this is just as much of a learning process as it is about strictly writing about what you already know, right? So I wanted each of you to share what's something that you learned through the process of writing this book, either learn from your co-authors or learn from continued research or just learn from the process. We'll start with Gretchen and then George can jump in after. Yeah, thank you so much. It's it's really good to be here. I think the thing that I learned more in depth is just how brilliant and passionate and committed my co-authors are. So I had an appreciation for them through their work that I had read and been associated with previously. But this experience allowed me to get a better understanding of that. As you can imagine, we completed this. It came out in 2021. So it was at a very challenging time in, in general. And so I have to say how appreciative I was and continue to be for the professional relationship that I have with each of them and then thinking about how that has impacted how I do my work here in Pittsburgh and how I take up an additional leadership role that I came into um, post writing the book as well. So I feel like I learned the importance of relationships, professional relationships, and how teamwork and in-depth collaborations allow for one's own individual purpose to be more profoundly enacted, I think. Yeah, I feel like I'm better at this because of them. How about you, George? I learned, I think, some sort of similar things to Gretchen. I learned that it was such a nice reminder of people you have such deep respect for can become really close friends. And that was really the joy of putting this together with people that we all knew each other in certain ways, but not we're not friends. And we've become friends now because this work was long and it was tricky. And so that was a beautiful thing to learn is that people that you have this respect for professionally can become part of your sort of your heart circle. And the other thing I think I learned with that is that maybe not learning so much is such a beautiful reminder of how much process matters. The book is about process, but the process that we engaged with as a team mattered deeply in how we ended up writing chapters and how we would talk about things that were new to some of us and how we would disagree about things that the committing to a process and sticking to process, boy, but we all know the process matters, but it was such a beautiful reminder of that. The process you choose to use really impacts your outcome. And so that was a delightful reminder and in some ways stronger than I could have even imagined. As the book, of course, is five practices for equity-focused school leadership, the connotation 
school leadership is that okay it's the principal it's maybe the ap's but that's not necessarily so leadership doesn't only rest in certain titles and we're going to talk when we get to practice three about developing those leadership teams and what those roles look like but before we get there i did want to get a big picture context of when you're speaking to someone who is the principal or in that school leadership position and they, of course, do need to be a catalyst for starting this work, but not feel as though it's all on their shoulders where it's daunting. It's just, it's a one person or it's a three person job. How would you define that to them to say, look, this is your role here. This is what you definitely need to take control of, but also here's where, here's what's not your job, or here's where you need to delegate, or you need to collaborate, or you need you know, that you don't feel like it's all on you. But that starting point, we talked a little bit in the earlier part of the episode about are there exercises or practices for reflection that a leader might go through before opening the book to say, okay, let me get myself in the right mindset for what I'm going to encounter when I get into the book. And as I start to dig in, right. And this is, I think, part of that too, to say, look, Here's what you can expect to hear about what your responsibility is and be prepared for that because if you're not scaling it to your entire faculty and your entire staff, it's not going to work anyway. Uh, George, do you have thoughts to start on that one? I actually do. A couple of thoughts about that. One of the things we don't formally say in the introduction, but we certainly said in multiple settings is for some leaders, it makes sense to work through the book first yourself. One of the ways we've worked with some school districts or regions is to work with leadership teams, who leaders who will then work with their leadership teams because it becomes part of their professional development. And then they've gotten into this mindset and you've done a lot of learning and then you can then you can enact with your team. And so that's one sort of easy answer to that question is, yeah, engage in the book, at least the first three practices on your own and then go back and dig in with other people. And I think that requires a mindset of two things in terms of if you have a formal sort of administrative role is one, this work requires courage and determination. It does. It absolutely does. But it also requires rejecting the notion that leadership is only about roles and formal titles, like you said a minute ago, Raj. And you have to be able to hold both those things together. You have to be able to hold that, yes, this is my responsibility each and every day to push this forward. And it's my responsibility to do this collectively. Because I can't do it alone, but it won't happen without me. And those are messy things to hold in your head at the same time. So it requires that mindset. So part of it is it does make sense to do some of the work, you know, practice one, practice two, thinking about practice three on your own first before you bring your team, because it'll be easier. Yeah, because as your role, your title and your position in the school as that principal, or even if you're part of the another member of the leadership team would indicate that you need to drive the work. It's not you know, necessarily so that the person who's in that principal role is toward the top end of the continuum of most prepared to most informed already about the different factors that drive inequity. There might be teachers who know more about it, the principal may or may not, but they know that they need to get there because they're going to need to help everybody come along with them. And part of that, I think it's a great idea to get that head start, get a really good understanding of what this is about first, and then go back to the beginning and then work through it together. But what do you think? Do you have other thoughts to add or another kind of thought around that, Gretchen? Yeah, I think George really hit it, hit the nail on the head around getting to a place where you feel comfortable with it on some level, recognizing that 
it is a process and that, that there may be others, and you said this, Ross, who have more knowledge about particular aspects of it. But I think that in addition to maybe looking at and thinking through the last two is to commit to doing it multiple times, right? So from the beginning, know that this work is ongoing work. It's not the type of work where you uh, get to an endpoint, tidy it up, and I'm done with that, check it off the list. But that these processes are the kinds of processes that we think about people starting over and over again. So as you think about it going through once yourself, also know that, oh, I might be, I'm going to do this again and again. So I think that lifts some of the weight of having to get it right, especially if you're in that role as principal, having to get it all right that first time that you do it, because it is a learning process as well. So And we designed it and thought of it that way, that each time you do it, you get better at it. But each time you do it, you also recognize where you need to get better. We talked about the first of the five practices in the first half of the episodes. We'll move on to practice two now, which is preparing for equity. And it's the ongoing emotional and intellectual work of equity leadership. And so some of the parts of this this chapter of the book include the key concepts, guiding principles, exploring identities. George, when you think about the guiding principles and what a leader needs to be prepared to really adopt. Are there a couple that, you know, that those real non-negotiables to say, look, this is, you have to start here when you're moving into this, because if you don't, if you don't adopt these principles, these next parts are just really going to be hard to grapple with. Yeah, absolutely. I think actually not to not focus on practice two, but that starts in practice one, that's idea that inequity is systemic. The multiple levels of inequity is a foundational concept for thinking about change. We recognize that we spend so much time in this country thinking about issues of discrimination and bias being only interpersonal, right? That I'm a bad person. I might say racist things. I might act in an anti-Semitic manner. And that's the level of discourse, right? And so, yes, those are racist and anti-Semitic things, but we have to understand if we if you can't get our heads around that pyramid in practice one, like that, it's really hard to do this work, right? It's really hard to address systemic inequity only at the interpersonal level. In fact, it's impossible. That's a non-negotiable. We have to understand that. We have to, part of the key concepts, again, in practice two are giving us common language, right? We have to understand issues like privilege. We have to understand issues like social construction, that that these things didn't fall from the sky, right? Those are, it's not so much non-negotiables as there has to be shared understanding. We have to understand identity and you can't understand identity in this day and age without understanding intersectionality. We are not just one thing. And so those are, we put those as key concepts because you really can't do this work without understanding those pieces. It's, I guess, in understanding those pieces, you have to embrace them, right? You have to embrace that privilege and oppression are two sides to the same coin, that some of us, because of our experiences and our identities, have had to work less hard on certain aspects. It doesn't mean we didn't work hard, but I faced fewer barriers. And so you have to embrace those things. And those key concepts really walk the readers and teams through some pretty important foundational pieces before we get them to wrestle with the, the big six identity markers. It was really critical because there's a part, and as you talk about the identities, this is something that is so important because it's such a topic of debate, good faith, bad faith, and it can be very destructive when people in positions of 
influence really refused to engage with this. And something that's so important about the leadership here is that while, of course, as any individual leader, et cetera, it's good to understand and have ownership of your own identity. You also, when it comes to leading this work, have to really take that out of it and not impose whatever, however you think of identity or your identity on others, because it really is about each individual developing that on their own. And particularly when it comes to, I don't know if there's like a good terminology, but there's things like the aspects of identity that are more visible on the surface or not, right? But things like race, sex, language, oftentimes disability, right? When you meet somebody, you can identify, okay, I can see, but then there's all the other aspects around gender identity, sexual identity, religion, socioeconomics, that you need to know more about somebody. You need to actually develop a relationship with them and understand how folks identify in those regards. With this kind of piece, this is something that understanding is rapidly evolving. And you may have a lot of leaders who have been in schools a long time and are really on mission, but it seems a lot like of a different context than what it used to be, or there's more things that they have to be aware of now that they, oh, what's happening here? And it's not so much that all of these things haven't always existed, but it's that they were suppressed to the point where people who were didn't have to deal with it if they didn't feel like it. But what about this part of exploring identities and I guess the importance of really being informed about this and really being informed about it in general and then taking the next steps to be informed about the individuals that you're working with because you can't just assume, right? I mean, you really need to know. Yeah, so I think one of the things we we pride ourselves on in this book is really starting with the self-work, the self-identity and so often the way in which you said that, I appreciate the way in which you set that question up is like looking out, like how do we identify others? But we take a very intentional stance in this and process and say, you start with the self. You have to do that self work before thinking about others, how others identify or not. And in doing that self work, then you have to think about history You have to think about the impact of institutions. You have to think about all of these things that we may be more inclined to look outward, right, to someone else and be looking to name their experience. We've asked people to really think critically about identity in their own lives and then think about how that identity has really helped to frame or does frame the paradigms, right, that that go into how they might then look out and see someone who might be racially different or who might have grown up in a different socioeconomics, right? So really thinking about how one's own understanding of self impacts how it is we then become to know others. And so I think um, it's really critical to do that work. And it's hard sometimes when you're in schools, especially when you have very passionate folks who love children, who just want the best for all kids and coming from their own identities and their own self-paradigms think that if I can just make it um, such that their experience looks similar to mine, or if I can just remove the barriers, right, without understanding more in-depthly about how they are identifying their barriers, it's very easy to fall into those traps. And so what we try to do in this book, and I think we've gotten feedback to say that 
it really is an eye-opening experience for folks who go through this in the ways in which it is intended that they have their own awareness um, of self and identity in a way that then allows them to be more open to understanding and be more open to learning about others. And so I think it necessarily starts with the self. There's, I guess, peace when you understand all this, and then you go back to the guiding principles of accepting as fact that the current status quo is inequity, mm-hmm. and that if you just, even if you're not doing anything where you believe you're creating inequity, if you're perpetuating the status quo, then inequity versus, I guess that's where a lot of the challenge people have comes from, whereas if they think of the status quo as being equity, well, I'm not doing anything to create new inequities, well, that's that's not the point. You have to actually create equity and understand how different populations are affected by the way the historical status quo has been set up. Right. Moving and to the, yeah, go ahead. Ross, can I also add, you also have to be open to thinking about how the status quo or even your self-paradigms may be acting in equity in ways that you just have yeah. no idea right. about. And I think that's the real, real hard part. And across those six different identities, I'm a cisgendered Black woman. And so there are just ways in which I've learned over the last decade about how my own heterosexual orientation to the world and my way of thinking about things. And through that lens, it can create inequities for students who do not identify that way. And so there, it's just the awareness that is continuously evolving. Yeah. Right. It's right, one of the yeah, hardest yeah. things about this work, I think. What Gretchen is referring to, I think one of the things that's most difficult is that this is not about how long you've done this work or our intentions, mm-hmm. right? Really well-intentioned people have set up and run schools and districts and classrooms that are beautiful for some kids and horribly oppressive for others, right? And so it... Getting out of that mindset is really hard, right? Mm -hmm. And being consciously aware to see the world anew based on digging deep into your own identities, as Gretchen referred to, and seeing how that inequity plays out in the world and recognizing we're a part of that, right? Like that's really heavy emotional lifting. And once Mm -hmm. you start doing that, you see the world anew and it's it's hard, right? Right. Really right. And that's why it's so hard, as you said earlier, why it has to happen at that systemic level. It can't just happen at the individual level because that's the context. Or if I'm as an individual just thinking, well, I'm in the mainstream of society. I'm not worse than anybody else. It's like, well, if society has these issues and you're not on this side trying to progress beyond those issues, then that's the context of it. And that's and in some ways that should be liberating to people who want to make a difference to say, look, it's not, you didn't create all these problems, but you have an opportunity in other ways. Of course, it's daunting or it's something where people might think, why is that my job? But that's just the way it is. And if we're on mission around this work, that's just what we have to do. And when we think about that, we're thinking about the individuals who need to drive it and there's teams. So that's practice three is developing those equity teams and leading toward this together and not saying I have to do it myself. And there's roles within that. And these roles can be as part of these equity teams, the roles don't have to be defined by what your relative title or position is, right? It's about the kind of role you're going to play in this work. So I I did want to touch on that and highlight what are some of those roles 
that folks are going to have to think about empowering as they create these teams, Gretchen? So we talk about educators and in, in, in this work, we talk about leadership practitioners, equity champions, and decision makers. Those are the four roles that we expand upon in this work when you're developing equity teams. I think when we talk about expanding and strengthening relationships, we're really talking about the, who's on your team. Like you have to model being in relationship with people being in relationship with people who are different <laughs> from you, right? You have to model that for folks. Educators in that space, then when we're doing that, we have to think about what does it mean to be to learn together, to practice dialogue that supports learning from each other, thinking about rotating responsibilities. Like how do you set this up as a learning experience? Leadership practitioners, right? Thinking about telling your story about leadership identity. How do you talk about your beliefs, your values, your style? Uh, routines, like leadership routines mm -hmm. that people can then anticipate, like what is going to happen. And then at the same time, examining that practice becomes really important. Equity champions, got to be in it for equity, right? You've right. got to really be willing to engage in what we've been talking about, this critical consciousness and thinking about how we are, how power is enacted in the space. And then consistently thinking about ways to advance equity. And then finally thinking about how you're going to decide things. We talk about the decision maker. How are you going to, how do you get to be, how do you get to a place where a decision has to be made and communicate that and transparent, fully humane ways. And to do that as genuinely as possible. I could see how bridging between three here and, and practice four about building those equity focused systems and buying needs to plan mm -hmm. the change, how there's particular roles, particularly those equity champions mm -hmm. that are so critical in so many different types of school environments where the, the equity needs are not as obvious. Right. There's certain schools you could think of where the causes and the solutions may not always be obvious, but the needs are obvious. Okay. We could see that there is extreme inequity happening within the school building. Mm -hmm. And then there's other schools where everything inside the school seems fine, but we're, we need to think about equity needs also in the macro, in the what is the, as Sharon phrased it earlier, the formal and the informal curriculum? What are the things that our students need to be learning to be productive citizens? who are going to contribute toward an equity-focused society once they get out of this school, even if it's not like necessarily showing up in the demography or the academic achievement of my students. And that's where it can be super hard. And you need those voices outside of just the one person to keep saying, hey, we need to keep working mm -hmm. on this. It's not just the ones that need to keep persevering when you're on a, when you're yeah. working toward a strategy that's difficult, but it's especially the ones that need to keep saying, we need to keep focusing on this yep. when it seems like it's not urgent, right? When it seems right. when it seems like right. we don't have to think about it. But, you know, what George, and uh, so we talk about kind of that needs assessment piece, what might that look like in some of those different school environments who are assessing their needs? And sometimes you're start you're starting from scratch from a point of not having already determine the needs or not being in a school that's been labeled as at risk or whatever. Right. And you're saying, we just, I mean, equity is important in every school. Yeah. Were so many places feel like, and their community says, hey, we're doing a pretty good job. And so why do we need to do this work? 
part of the reason practice four is four and not first is that all that other work has to build towards it, right? The, before we dive into needs assessment, the danger is to dive into the needs assessment, right? right? Because it feels so practical and it's gritty, right? But if we haven't done the identity work, we don't think about the data mm-hmm. in the same way, right? If we haven't done the team work, we're not necessarily being purposeful about having diverse voices at the table who are asking questions that some of us wouldn't have asked, right? And so the, our tendency is to dive into that without doing this other stuff. And that's why it is fourth. But you raised such a good question. Is there a lot of places that, you know, that feel like our community says we're doing a pretty good job, right? Our kids are graduating. Or, well, maybe not all of our kids are graduating, but lots of them are graduating. There's, we always have that asterisk, that but. Well, we don't have that many fill-in-the-blank kids, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have that many kids with complicated disability needs, right? What we're doing must be fine. Or we don't, we're a predominantly white district. We don't have that many kids of color. And so even if there's a pattern, we can explain it away. And so the needs assessment gets at the local data of the nitty gritty details of how equity play, how equity from the sort of 50,000 foot level plays out day to day, kid by kid. And that's the beauty of it, right? And what we have in the appendix of the book is an extensive needs assessment, right? It has all, or equity audit, call it what you want. It has all kinds of moments to look at what's the experience for kids, little kids, big kids, medium kids. What's the academic experience, right? What's the social experience? What's the sort of enriching experience? And we certainly recommend that people do it all. But sometimes you can't do it all the first time. So pick a section, right? We want to look at, we're working with some districts that are looking at their their sort of enrichment opportunities. They're sort of clubs and after school, drama, sports, those kind of things, because we know that matters, right? And so they're not doing the whole thing. They're just doing a fraction of it because they're, quote, really good places and their kids graduate and they go to the best higher institutions of learning. And so they're looking at that and they're realizing, guess what? It's huge inequity right there. Right. And it's hard. And so it's a piece, right? It's a piece of it. And so we recommend doing that. With that, having said that, though, here's my biggest warning about chapter four. Doing the equity audit is akin. We have some very smart colleagues who made this analogy, and I'd like to repeat it. Doing the equity audit is akin to a fire alarm. Mm-hmm. Yes. I was tear up saying this. I'm sorry. <laughs> and sometimes we expect with an equity audit, well, we've done the audit. Now so things are solved. We would right. never say the fire alarm puts out the freaking fire. Right. No, right. it tells us there is something wrong that we have to do something about. The, the equity audit needs assessment is not the end. It's a means to the end. And too often we feel like, oh yeah, we've identified a problem. That's not the same as solving it. That's the right. danger with equity audits is that doing it should lead to more hard work, not to stopping. That's right. It's the yeah. fire alarm. It's not the fire brigade. It's not the fire department. It's not the strategies to keep everybody safe. I sure as heck want fire alarms in my house. Right. Right. And I appreciate so much, George, reminding us of that and doing so as passionately as he does, which is also why we have practice five. <laughs> like, right, right. How do you sustain this work? Right. Because it's hard. It's heavy lifting. You do it for a long time. And our experience and the need, and I'll circle back to your first question, Ross, about what did we learn about this, is I learned that I cannot do it without colleagues like my co-authors, right? Because I need them to help me to consistently be aware in ways that uh, their diverse lived experiences allow me to be. I'm also so glad you brought up the point about the needs assessment being the fourth 
practice because that was my first reaction looking at the needs assessment is fourth. <laughs> but it makes sense when you think about, okay, the needs assessment is only as good as the team that you have conducting the assessment, their understanding of the people for whom they're assessing needs, right? And if you jump right to it and you only have mm -hmm. a couple of people and they don't really understand the context, they're like, okay, like they might come up with something that might not. It's like with the fire alarm, if you just have an alarm on the wall and, but you don't know if it's a fire alarm, a carbon monoxide detector, a smoke alarm, you don't really know. And the alarm's going off and it's like, well, I, the alarm's going off, something must be wrong. And then maybe okay. someday the alarm stops and you don't know, did we do something to stop it? Was it an accident? <laughs> well, you have to have that intentionality. You have to know what you're addressing specifically and precisely. And that's what this practice five, looking back and planning forward, then you can look back and say, okay, with these specific areas of inequity that we knew we needed to address, how are we doing? Because maybe there was five key things and we're doing really well on four of them, but we know that fifth one still needs work, right? You can do that now versus otherwise saying, well, our test scores are up, so we must be doing fine. Okay, but there's still somebody who's kind of missing out there. And that's the part that's hard, but also that's the part that hopefully provides some understanding to somebody who's embarking on this. If you've gone through these steps in sequence and fully, it should provide a lot of promise to say, okay, now you will actually know how you're doing and you will be able to make the adjustments you need to make You'll be able to repeat the things that are working and be able to plan to build upon them because you'll know exactly what you're dealing with. You're not just doing whack-a-mole or right. <laughs> shooting in the dark and saying, let's try this, let's try that. So what would you say, Gretchen, about that or just about what should be encouraging about Practice 5? Well, the encouragement about Practice 5 is we bring it back to the self, I think, and saying, listen, we want you to do this work for sure. That's why we wrote the book, but we also want you to do it in healthy ways. Right. Right. And so I think that really is the full circle for me and my co-authors in this is to say, we know that there are people who embark upon this work and the ways in which they do it are not sustainable. And at the end of the day, that doesn't help the kids and the stories that we highlight in ways that are allow for the most impact and the most sustainable change. Right. And so we recognize each of our own humanity in this, I think, and wanting each other to be around for a long time doing the good work. And that's what I would say. I would say this last book is like us. Um, I think maybe we talked about it this way at some point, George, a love letter to practitioners and saying, look, we see you, we want you to take care of yourselves. We want you to be well emotionally, physically, spiritually, so that you can continue doing this work. That's why we are here for each other and doing this kind of work together so that we can remind each other to do that as well. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to thank you both again for being here. And as we're kind of concluding, I want to ask you a question, the same thing I asked your co-authors and we talked about the vision of that equity focused school and kind of beginning with that in mind and saying, okay, if we're, if I walked into an equity focused school, what would it look like? What is the principal doing? And what are the other people doing? I think a realistic part of planning to attain that is being mindful of what are the significant challenges that are occurring, right? That as a school leader, I need to identify and address intentionally. 
And of course, that'll come up through all the steps, right? But I wanted each of each of you authors to highlight one, to say, okay, this is one that I see all the time or that I know is really significant or that is particularly difficult that I want to put on the radar and say, look, and when you're starting this work, know that you have to address this challenge. And if you start there and you have it on your radar, then you can really do it and get started with it. George, let's start with your perspective on that. And then Gretchen will chime in. Oh, great. I, uh, I'm going to have a hard time just saying one, probably. I think <laughs> the challenge is that we have to keep picking this work up and it's easy to put it down. No. That's the thing I think I find the most important, right? Because whether you, if you know a lot or you get tired, it's easy to put it down. So that's the biggest challenge is you got to keep picking it back up. I, I will just say one because it leads from that. It's about holding two contradictory things in their head. I said this earlier about a different problem, but this is actually the root of this. It's about holding the urgency, right, that the house is on fire. Mm-hmm. With the long view, right? This book is about the long view. If you only focus on the long view, we're complacent with the kids that are suffering now. If we act, if we only focus on the house being on fire, we do knee jerk things Mm -hmm. to solve small problems that are not systemic. So what I say, the biggest challenge is hold those two things, hold them. Right. Gretchen? So in the vein of holding the complexity of this work, I would say... Talk to young people. Yeah. I would say talk to your current students and your former students. I would constantly be in communication with how students are experiencing their school context and their learning environments in the moment. And I would be figuring out how to stay in touch with students so as they reflect back, Mm -hmm. they can help me to better understand what, how, what they experienced at that moment is impacting their lives. Yeah. Because I, I think we have to listen. And if we're really listening, then the complexity that George um, talks about there becomes more bearable, right? Because we are, we do, sometimes we get some things right without even thinking about it, but then how do we make that a part of our system? that sometimes the thing that we put in that we think is the right thing has such a profound negative impact on students. So I think if we're constantly listening and grappling with our actions towards equity through the lens of how the students we want to serve, the students we serve and the students we want to impact actually experience them, then we are able to hold the complexity of it. Yeah, yeah. Nobody asked me, but one thing that I would... Note, because it's so evident in all of this, is obviously a challenge to any type of transformative work that's meant to disrupt and change the status quo is deflecting away the naysayers. And that's why it's so important who you surround yourself with. And it's evident in this book, not only did you put together the team to work together to write it, and and your strategies are about developing that team within the school, it's about getting people around you we're all going to be working toward these goals together and not trying to be out there on an island. And that helps you work through that to say, if you're outside of this, then okay. And it doesn't mean it won't be frustrating, but it means that we're going to keep pushing each other along when that thing happens, that doesn't work out the way we thought works the exact opposite of how we thought we just keep pushing toward it because it is like you said, George, there's the urgency, but there's also the long history and Whenever things all come together, if it's in this lifetime, the next, then, you know, it'll happen a lot sooner if we're 
<laughs> making continuous progress toward it versus just pushing it off for another day. Really appreciate you both being here, Dr. Mark Anthony Good and Dr. Sharon Rad, and my current guest, Dr. George Theo Harris and Dr. Gretchen Givens Jenneret, all for sharing their expertise from their book, Five Practices for Equity Focused School Leadership. And listeners, you'll find the link to purchase the book from ASCD down below in the show notes. You'll also get the full bios for all of the authors and some other links to some more of their current work. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's been a real pleasure. Listeners, subscribe to The Authority for more interviews. Visit bpodcast.network for more of our shows, and we'll catch you next time. This has been The Authority Podcast, hosted by Ross Romano, with guests Sharon Rad, Mark Gooden, Gretchen Jenneret, and George Theo Harris, edited by Gage Sanderson. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers' time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.